Well, I want to um, start with a, an example, and I want to I want you to imagine something. Okay, I want to you to imagine. I don't know whether you drive a car or you don't drive a car, but I want you to imagine that you drive a car, and I want you to imagine that you're going to buy a car, and you you want to buy an ex- you want to buy the best car that you can get, and you see a, an advert the side of the road, the car, their showroom, and the man, the advert says, you know, this is a, we'll say it's a BMW, they're nice cars, um, it's top of the range, BMW, and it's only going to be, we'll say, £5,000, wow, you think, this is, this is too good to be true, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to get this bargain, and so you go in and you speak with the, uh, the salesman there, and, uh, He's telling you this is a wonderful car and it's all the things. It's a great price. And, and then as the conversation goes on, he, he asks you, he said, now, tell me, um, do you want an engine with this car? And you say, well, yeah, I was thinking an engine would be a good thing for a car. And he says, well, yeah, well, that's the, the engine is an optional. It's an extra, you see. That will cost you £25,000. Oh, right, okay, yeah, um, okay. Uh, and tell me, do you want a steering wheel with this car? Yeah, I think a steering wheel. I, I really quite like a steering wheel. Yeah, well, that's, you see, that's another extra. That's another £10,000. Now, tell me, do you want wheels on this car? Are you thinking, yeah, yeah, I'd like wheels. Wheels would be good. He said, well, you know, it's another £10,000 each for the wheels. Now, you get the picture. Um, there, there are some things, you know, but without them, is it really a car at all? It might be a chassis, it might be a frame, but it, it's not really a car. The point is this, some, some things are intrinsic, they're essential, they're indispensable. They're not luxuries, they're not really optional extras or add-ons. They are of the essence of the thing. Without the engine, or the wheels, or the steering wheel, can you really call it a car? Now in these verses for us this evening, Jesus is speaking about the essentials of Christian discipleship. Without these elements present, it is simply not possible to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And you'll notice, I'm sure you noticed as we read through, that on three occasions here, Jesus states that without these key ingredients, he says, a person simply cannot, he says, be my disciple. He says that in verse 26, he says it in verse 27, and he says it again in verse 33. In other words, without these essential components, Jesus says it's impossible for you to be one of my disciples. And the language he uses here is very stark, it's very uncompromising, it's very strong, it's unequivocal. It's the same words, in fact, that we find in John chapter 3. You'll remember where Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless he is born again, He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Literally, it means you do not have the power or ability to enter. In other words, these are matters of great importance if we're thinking about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. And Jesus here speaks of these things, you'll notice, as he's making his way towards Jerusalem. He's a man with a mission. He's on the, on the, on this journey to the cross. And on the journey, it seems that Jesus has, in fact, picked up quite a following. As he has preached and taught, as he's healed, as he's driven out demons, as he's eaten with tax collectors and sinners, as he's challenged the religious authorities of the day, this large crowd has attached itself to him as he moves from village to village. We're told in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And then he turned to them and said, Jesus it appears, is not impressed by these great numbers of would-be followers. In fact, in these verses, he appears to go out of his way to put them off. His words are rather like a, a bucket of cold water on their enthusiasm. He explains to the crowd just what it really means to follow after him. And he challenges them and confronts them as he challenges us and confronts us in a most powerful and dramatic way. Jesus says here, if you're really going to follow me, then you really need to know what's involved. You need to know what the demands of such a path are going to be. Yes, the good news that Jesus brings is offered freely to all But that same gospel will call from us every last ounce of commitment. And Jesus here highlights um, three essential ingredients of authentic discipleship. And uh, I want to look at each in turn. Without them, he says, we cannot be his disciples. So what are these essential ingredients? Well, let's look at the first. We find that in verse 26. And the first is this. Christian disciple must love Jesus first. The Christian disciple must love Jesus first. If anyone comes to me, anyone, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you'll be aware that in most traditional cultures, uh, family is important. In fact, family is everything. It's those key family relationships that are most significant and important in life. These are the strongest bonds imaginable in the society of which Jesus was part. And yet, Jesus talks here of hating father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. It's just absolutely shocking language. Even to our ears. Is is Jesus really saying here to us 
that it's a condition of discipleship that we hate and despise our families. In fact, he goes beyond that to talk of hating even one's own life. I mean, what on earth is Jesus driving at? What is he saying to us? Now, I don't think for a moment that Jesus is encouraging his followers to break the fifth commandment. Certainly, the scriptures tell us that children are to honor their parents. Husbands are to love their wives. Fathers are to care for their children. And I do not think for a moment that Jesus is kind of putting all that teaching aside here. So what is he saying? Well, I think Jesus' teaching here is not about animosity. It's about priority. Some suggest that what Jesus really means when he uses the word hate is kind of loveless. In other words, we are to love our parents, children, spouses, siblings less than we love Jesus. However, perhaps Jesus could have conveyed that without using the word hate here. It's a very strong term. Shocking, really. And I think that Jesus is using this shocking language as a kind of contrast. He's portraying a shocking contrast between love on the one hand and hate on the other. Those most intimate and loving of family relationships to be like hate in comparison to the love that we are to have for Jesus himself. It's not just that we are to love Jesus a little more than our closest family. It's that we are to love him a whole lot more. Our love for Jesus is to be so great that our affection and devotion to others is like hatred in comparison. Jesus himself is to be supreme in our affections. He is to be preeminent in all things. And our love for him, therefore, is to be utterly overwhelming and all-consuming. It is to pervade, it is to ooze into every single aspect of our lives. Nothing is to be missed out. And our love for him is such that it's to put every other love into the shade. And that is, a, that is the radical nature of Christian discipleship. We're to brook no rival to Jesus in this world. Our love for him is to be total. It's to be complete. I can think of a number of people I've known down through the, the years who have literally disowned and disinherited by their families because of their Christian faith, because of their love for Jesus, because of their loyalty to him. Their whole lives transformed, their priorities changed, their outlook radically altered. And that change brought with action. Not easy, of course, for them to bear. But they bore it because they had come to love Jesus. And at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is that we could say and mean, I love Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ this evening? Remember the American preacher John Piper uh, writing of an experience he had in his 
seminary days. I can't remember where I got this. It might have been some article. And this is what he wrote. He said, a group of us were huddled around uh, James Morgan, a young theology teacher who was saying something about the engagement of Christians in social justice. I don't remember what I said, but he looked me right in the eye and said, John, I love Jesus Christ. Piper writes, it was like a thunderclap in my heart. The strong, intelligent, mature, socially engaged man had just said out loud in front of half a dozen men, I love Jesus Christ. He wasn't preaching. He wasn't pronouncing on any issue. He wasn't singing in church. He wasn't trying to get a job. He was not being recorded. He was simply telling me that he loved Jesus. Piper goes on, the echo of that thunderclap is still sounding in my heart. And that was 40 odd years ago. There are a thousand things I don't remember about those days in seminary. But that afternoon remains unforgettable. And all he said was, John, I love Jesus Christ. That man died a year later of stomach cancer, leaving a wife and four small children. His chief legacy in my life was one statement on an afternoon in Pasadena. I love Jesus Christ. There is perhaps more to discipleship than loving Jesus. But friends, there is not less. That's the bottom line, the bare minimum, is that we love Jesus Christ. And our love for Jesus is to be of such strength and devotion that it puts everything else into the shade. Jesus says here, I must be your first love. It takes this kind of love to be a disciple of Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, without it, we cannot be his disciples. The Christian disciple must love Jesus. And secondly, in verse 27, the Christian disciple must bear a cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, I've said already that Jesus was on a journey. It's a journey that would uh, bring him humiliation and shame and death. It's a journey that would leave him tortured and stripped bare. A journey that would take him ultimately to the cross. And to follow Jesus means that we have to travel that way as well. We too must bear our cross. We cannot follow Jesus on the condition that he alone does all the dying. There's a classic medieval work of Christian devotion called The Imitation of Christ. The author uh, wrote this. Jesus has now many lovers of his kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. He has many that are desirous of consolation, but few of tribulation. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. 
But if we want to be Christian disciples, there will be sacrifices. There will be pain. There's a price that has to be paid. And Jesus himself made that quite plain and urged all prospective disciples to weigh these matters carefully. Now, it's important we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. The cost of discipleship, which he refers, is not a fee that is charged for the entrance ticket to heaven. We cannot purchase eternal life by deeds of religious devotion, no matter how heroic they might be, or self-sacrificing. The cross that Jesus talks about here is simply a consequence of having our life and destiny linked and joined to him. It's It's the result of being united to him by faith. We are joined to him. He is in us, and in a sense, we are in him. And this is what it means for us to bear a cross. No way of avoiding it. The language of the cross is the language of death. It's not cool, it's not sexy, it's not attractive. It's actually ugly and brutal and painful. And indeed, many believers across the world today know that only too well. In Jesus' day, the Romans crucified thousands of people in that part of the world. Many of Jesus' hearers would have been perhaps well acquainted with the sight of a man broken and bruised carrying his cross to his own execution. They may well have attended as sightseers, you know, surveying the scene, watching the nails being hammered in, witnessing the blood, hearing the anguished cries and shrieks. And of course, it's interesting how in the rest of the New Testament, Paul in particular, and indeed the other New Testament writers, use this death language to speak of the Christian life. Paul speaks of of the Christian offering his or her body as a sacrifice on the altar of God's grace. He speaks of the cross of Christ by which the world has been crucified to him. He talks of sharing Christ's sufferings and becoming like him in his death. Because, you see, for the, for the early Christians, they understood that the Christian life is to be shaped by the cross. I remember hearing, I think it, I think it might have been Sinclair Ferguson talking, um, some years ago, how, you know, theologians have sought to distinguish the marks by which, you know, the true church can be recognized and traditionally these have been known, um, you know, classic reform theology identifies them as you know, the true preaching of the gospel, the proper administration of the sacraments, the right exercise of discipline. He says that the, he thinks there's at least a case to be made for including a willingness to suffer and die for Christ as a mark of the true church. Because when Jesus speaks about cross-bearing, He's not speaking about carrying, you know, some burden through life. Cross-bearing means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to this man, Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, When Christ bids a man, he bids him come die, die to self. 
And I would, it would be nice if we could water this statement down and make it a little more palatable. But Jesus says, without picking up our cross, you know, you cannot be my disciple. Because the Christian life is not about treading or navigating the path of least resistance. It's about being faithful to Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. It's about picking up our cross and following after him closely. We know that real, genuine, authentic relationships never come cheap. You hold another person's hand. You promise to love them and stick by them no matter what. Neither of you knows when you take such unconditional words on your lips what that vow will cost you. But cost you it will. And potentially the cost could be huge. Well, it's the same with Jesus. He didn't come to solicit customers. He came to call disciples. People ready to make if you like, an unconditional commitment to him and to be faithful to that commitment, even to the point of death itself. The Christian disciple must love Jesus first. The Christian disciple must pick up their cross and follow him. And then thirdly here, the Christian disciple must, you'll notice, forsake all. Jesus, in the final section from verse 28 through 35, uses two illustrations of people who count the cost before embarking on some project. Um, Actually, those are two common pictures of the Christian life, aren't they? A building and a battle. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, verse 28, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he's enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. If someone's going to engage in constructing a tower or a building, they'll sit down, they'll evaluate whether or not they've they required resources. I I remember in my home village, there was a man who, who started to build a house. Most of the bricks he was using had allegedly been taken from various building sites along the county, across the county. But he badly miscalculated what was needed. And the building remained for years with walls that were just, you know, a few feet high. And he was, he was a laughing stock in the community. Or what king, verse 31, going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first to rate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the others are yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The second picture is is a king facing an enemy of vastly superior strength. He's a big decision to make. If he calculates that he doesn't have enough men to win the battle, he will sue for peace rather than risk total defeat. How does Jesus apply this? What's his point? If any one of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. The point he's making is that being his disciple will take everything. It will take all that we have. 
It's a total commitment. Christian discipleship isn't a hobby or a pastime. It's not something we can just drift into without careful thought and consideration. There's a cost to be counted. You know, we cannot just hedge our bets. We have to be all in. And tragically, the Christian landscape of our land is littered with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers. Those who started, but for whatever reason, were unable to finish. Who began the journey, but didn't have any perseverance to stay the course. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of this in his letter in chapter 6. He talks of those who are unable to be brought back on the path of consistent discipleship. And here, you'll notice what Jesus says, salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. Already in this gospel, Jesus has spoken about those whose hearts were like rocky ground with no depth. The gospel fails to take root, and so in times of testing, they simply fall or drift away. They didn't reckon on that cross that had to be carried. They didn't count the cost of discipleship. And then, of course, there were those whose love for Jesus was choked and strangled and squeezed out by the many cares and pleasures and worries of this life. Many years ago, the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, It costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice, follow Christ, believe in Christ, confess Christ, requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins and our self-righteousness and our ease and our worldliness. All must be given up. You see, Christian discipleship is all or nothing. It involves persistence and perseverance. It means staying the course not throwing in the towel. We must keep on keeping on. We must continue to love Jesus first. We must continue to carry our cross. We must continue to give all to him. Now let's be brutally honest. These words of Jesus here in Luke 14 are absolutely terrifying. It's very uncomfortable teaching. It's scary stuff. And you can imagine that great crowd, you know, evaporating at hearing these words of Jesus. I ask myself this question, what about me? What about us? How do we respond to them? What do we make of what Jesus says here? How on earth can anyone be a disciple of Jesus? If these are the essential ingredients, if these are the key qualities, if if these are the vital components of discipleship, how is it possible for any of us to be a disciple? How is it possible for us to love Jesus first, before our families, before even our own lives? How can we carry that cross that may well entail some measure of suffering, even death? How can we renounce everything 
for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, why would anyone want to follow Jesus on these terms? Isn't it, isn't it all just a little bit extreme? Isn't it all just a little bit fanatical? In a sense, it is. It is extreme. It is radical. It is all-consuming. It is disturbing. But friends, this is Christianity. You know, I suspect that those first disciples didn't fully understand what Jesus was speaking about here until after his death and resurrection. They didn't really get what he was teaching them here until much later. It was only in the light of the cross, in the light of the resurrection, in the light of the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the pieces started to fall into place. Because you see, they had not simply to be instructed by Jesus. They had to be changed by Jesus. They had to be transformed by the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. They had to know the Spirit's quickening work in their lives. By faith, they had to be united to the risen and ascended Christ. And friends, so must we. We need the Spirit to indwell us and unite us to Christ and to make us new creatures. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That is what happens when we are joined to Jesus. I preached one of my earliest sermons well over 30 years ago now on these very verses. And some time ago, clearing out um, a desk, I came across the notes and had a look at them. They were written in blue biro, so that tells you how long ago that was. It was a young man's sermon. It contained many exhortations to deeper commitment and sacrifice and so forth. But I noticed that it failed completely to touch on this issue of motivation. Why should I love Jesus like this? How can any of us love Jesus like this? There's a sense in which we always love I suppose that which seems desirable and attractive to us. We will all simply love ourselves or love the world or love sin until we see and appreciate one who is better and altogether lovely. And that is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. He makes us taste and see that the Lord is good, supremely beautiful, 
And he causes us, amazingly, to desire Jesus Christ and to enjoy him and to enjoy a relationship with him. He opens our eyes that we might see Jesus in all his glory. Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian of a bygone generation, says, Is there anything which Christians can find in heaven or earth so worthy to be the objects of their admiration and love, their earnest and longing desires, their hope and their rejoicing and their fervent zeal, as those things that are held forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Mike Reeves puts it, The jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, a philosophy, a program, or a thing. It is not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ, Christ himself. And if we lose sight of him, we lose sight of everything that is important. Because Christianity is not a system of ethics, rules, commands, or demands. It's the good news of a crucified and risen Savior. It's the good news of a love that will never let us go. It's the good news of forgiveness and pardon for sinners like us. It's good news of eternal life for all who will look to Jesus in faith. And yes, of course, discipleship has its essentials. Of that, there is no doubt. Jesus, you know, I think makes that abundantly clear here. But friends, those essentials flow out of hearts touched, melted, warmed by the love of Christ. Souls penetrated by his Wonderful and amazing grace. Lives transformed by his glorious gospel. You see, we must never lose sight of the fact that discipleship begins not with us, but with Jesus. It begins with his love and his grace and his power and his spirit and his word. It begins with him and his call in our lives. And friends, as it begins, so it continues. It continues as we see him in all his grace and glory and are constantly captivated by his loveliness and divine beauty. You see, it's because of who Jesus is that he can make such incredible demands of us. And it's when we see him in all the glory and splendor of his person, it's when we see his love and compassion for sinners like us, it's then that we can hold nothing back from him. We we gladly surrender all to him. As the old hymn puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Robert Murray McShane, 
wrote a friend with this advice. He said this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled upon you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. We want to love Jesus. Do we want to follow Jesus? Do we want to live for Jesus? We want to give our all for Jesus. Well, it all begins when we look away from ourselves to Jesus and to the wonder of his love for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would work in our lives by your Holy Spirit and through your word, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would open our eyes each and every day so that we would see Jesus and that we would follow him, that we would fix our eyes on him who is the author and perfecter of faith. Lord, we are all different people, different lives, different situations, different backgrounds. But we thank you that we're united by Jesus' love for us and that by your grace we're united in our love for him. Lord, make us your faithful disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.